Uh, a woman died and uh, she found herself standing outside the pearly gates, ready, uh, being greeted by St. Peter. And uh, she says, wow, this is beautiful. Have I really made it to heaven? And St. Peter says, well, you have to do one thing first before I can let you in. You have to spell a word. She says, what's the word? He says, oh, you can pick it yourself. She says, okay, love, L-O-V-E. And he says, wonderful, well done, you're in, welcome to heaven. And uh, he says, now, do you mind, I just need to take a little break. Do you mind just standing here and doing my job for a little while? And she says, okay, says, if somebody comes, just do the same thing that I did, ask them to spell a word. Uh, Anyway, she's sitting there in the chair admiring heaven and Lo and behold, along comes a man and she recognizes it as her husband. He says, I was at your funeral. I was so upset that I got in a car wreck and I died. She, he says, you know, am I, am, I, am I in heaven? She says, not yet. You have to do one thing. You have to spell a word. Um, what's the word he says? Czechoslovakia. There there are lots of jokes about how to get into heaven, um, and this was probably one of the mild ones that I found. Um, But is this joke an accurate picture of what happens when we die? Is this what happens when we die? And do we expect to get to the gates of heaven and and to meet St. Peter and to be left uh, to let in on that basis? Or is there something different that the Bible teaches? And uh, I can tell you the Bible does teach something different. And that's what we're going to look at today as we open our Bible passage. So why don't we pray that um, God would show us what happens on the day that we die so that we can be prepared for that day uh, when we encounter Jesus in heaven. Let's pray. Um, Our Heavenly Father, will you speak to us now through your word? Will you show us what happens when we die and, and what we need to do to be saved? Please reveal the truth to us now so we can look ahead with great trust. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, well, this is our final sermon in our series called Encounters with Jesus. It's been a series all about when people meet Jesus, when they have an encounter with Jesus, and how their life is changed because of it. But in our final encounter today, we're not looking at a historical encounter that Jesus had with somebody. We're actually looking forward into the future and to see an encounter with Jesus that every single human on earth, in history, and in the future, an encounter that every single human will have with Jesus, uh, an encounter with eternal consequences, uh, an encounter that we don't want to get wrong. Um, Now, I've picked a passage today from the very last book of the Bible. There's only like two chapters after this one. Book of Revelation. Um, This is a book that that some Christians love and and some non-Christians too, Um, but it's also a book that many people find confusing and, um, and a little bit confronting because of the imagery that it contains. Um, after all, it speaks about angels and demons and, and the mark of the beast and the Antichrist. Uh, it paints this picture of the end of the world in lurid, um, lurid descriptions of chaos and war and destruction and, and judgment. Uh, but the reason that it's full of that kind of imagery is because um, Revelation describes a vision, a vision that Jesus gave to the Apostle John. Um, this vision Um, that Jesus shows him all about the future and what's to come. And actually, in the very first verse of the book of Revelation, it says, Jesus says to John, I'm showing you this so that you know what's to come, so that you won't be afraid, so that you'll be prepared. Um, And you can imagine, a bit like I'm describing a dream, John relays the vision to us in language that is often symbolic and pictorial. Um, 
And there are sometimes ideas or concepts that are difficult to articulate, and so we have to kind of piece them together in our mind. Part of the challenge of reading Revelation. Um, We're only doing it for today. But remember, this isn't meant to be a confusing book or to leave us worried. Um, Jesus revealed this to John so he could reveal it to us so that we would know what's going to come. The the name of the book, Revelation, it's because it means revealing. It's what Jesus reveals, revealing God's plan so that we can put our trust in Jesus. So let's jump into the passage. You've got it there on the back of your sheets. Revelation 20, third last chapter of the Bible. It's a picture of the end of the world as we know it. Uh, And this is what John sees in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. John's vision opens uh, on a throne, this dazzling white, bright, shining, radiant throne, kind of putting words in his mouth a little bit. Uh, But that's because all the way through the book of Revelation, um, John takes his vision takes him time and time again into the throne room of God. And and the vision that he sees of God um, takes us back to Old Testament visions of God and his throne room. Um, Visions like the prophets Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel had in the Old Testament. So in in Daniel 7, God's throne is portrayed as this um, flaming chariot. And God himself is dressed in white, um, as white as snow, and his hair is like white wool. And then in Ezekiel 1, both God and, um, and God and the throne, they have the appearance of fire and brilliant light and radiance. It says, radiance like the appearance of a, radi- of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. There's a special word for that when, you know, when the light comes through the clouds. And I can't think of what it is, and I didn't research it. And in Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah has this vision of God, and he's, he's holy and high and exalted on his throne. Um, there is something both awesome and terrifying about the presence of God seated on his throne. Um, He's holy and he's majestic and he's powerful and he's pure. Um, Doesn't help that in these visions, usually God is surrounded by legions of angels. Um, Not the kind of cute chubby baby angels, uh, but angels that are covered in eyes and wings and as they move around, they make noise like thunder or... or, uh, It's terrifying. But you notice in Revelation 20 verse 11, the angels are gone. And the scene focuses in on the throne. Did you notice the strange detail about the one who is on the throne? Um, John doesn't identify who it is. He just says, him who was seated on it. I'm going to come back to that in a little while, because I think it's a bit of a puzzle to solve. Keep reading on in verse 11. It says, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. Now, remember, this is symbolic language representing a vision. Um, I'm not sure what it would look like for the earth and the heavens to flee away from the presence of God, um, the presence of the the one on the throne. Um, Perhaps it's an image of destruction. Uh, In Revelation 6, um, the book is all full of visions. Um, John has this vision of the heavens rolling up like a scroll. What would that even look like? Um, uh, He says, mountains and islands are plucked up from the places where they are. Perhaps this is another image of the same thing, destruction. Uh, Or perhaps the idea of fleeing is associated with judgment, um, the judgment motif in the passage. Um, The earth and the heavens somehow flee from the presence of God because nothing impure can stand in the presence of the holy and most high God. 
where the earth and the heavens, they might flee away, but the throne is not something that humans can flee from. Have a look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and and books were opened. The throne room scene has become a courtroom scene, a scene of judgment, and, and no one's exempt. Great and small alike have to stand before the throne as books are opened. Um, There's something kind of terrifying about the idea of standing before a judge and trusting in the justice system. Um, Don't get me wrong, I think we have a great judicial system, but it isn't perfect. Um, Human error does occur, and and there is room for corruption. Um, Those in positions of power, the great, um, sometimes avoid the full consequences of their misbehavior because of the resources they have. And often, it's the small who find themselves unable to compete with the legal resources of the great. That's just part of the world as we know it. But here in God's courtroom, both great and small, they stand in judgment side by side with no prejudice and and no preferential treatment. Either way, God's justice is perfect. Um, And God's justice is searching. Have a look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they'd done. In this image, nobody escapes God's judgment. It searches to the bottom of sea, at the bottom of the sea, and even into the realm of the dead. Um, Hades. Uh, you might know Hades from Greek mythology. Um, in, in the Bible's terms, a little bit different from the Greek mythology idea. Um, the New Testament writers, they use the word Hades to translate the Hebrew word Sheol from the Old Testament, which is the place where the dead go to wait until they're resurrected to judgment. Um, they rise and they face God. And that's the picture that we're seeing here in Revelation 20. But the point is this, there's nowhere in the universe that we can go to escape from God's judgment. And what does that judgment look like? Um, Again, remember, this is a vision that John's seeing, so it's full of symbolism, but the meaning, I think, is very plain. It's plain to see books are opened. And verse 12, the dead are judged according to what they've done, as recorded in the books. Um, If you've been here for a while, you might have guessed that I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. Um, This is is about as fiery and brimstone-y as I've ever done. But this passage is a fire and brimstone passage, right? Jesus reveals to us what the final judgment looks like. A judgment that each of us must face and no one can escape. A judgment where books are open and our life is laid out before us. And we must account for the choices that we've made. Um, It's said that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, the, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, he once sent a message to the 12 most respectable people he knew in the country. The message simply said this, Flee, all is revealed. And as it goes, six of the twelve left the country that day and were never heard from again. (laughs) We all have skeletons in the closet. And there's nothing we've done that God doesn't know about. In Hebrews uh, 4.13 it says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Um, I was pretty well behaved at school. Um, In fact, I was very well behaved. But one Friday afternoon, um, I mouthed off to the deputy principal of my private boys' academy. Um, It wasn't a great moment. Um, And he was a very scary individual. He said, Bidwell, I'll see you in my office on Monday. 
And uh, on Monday morning, actually, I spent the weekend terrified that I was going to get expelled. And it uh, turned out he didn't even remember what he'd called me in for. <laughs> I think that was his technique, just make him worried. But I knew what I did, and I, and I still remember that feeling of being caught because I really, I did the wrong thing. And uh, that feeling of being guilty. Prophet Isaiah had the same feeling. Uh, when he finds himself in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, he, um, he understands the sinfulness that he carries when he stands before the holy throne of God. And he says, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Are you prepared for the day when you stand before the throne of God and the books are open and your life is bare before the judgment of God? And when all is revealed, are you ready for that day? It's a kind of terrifying thought, if I'm honest. The vision continues, verse 14. Then death and Hades, the fire. Uh, the lake of fire is the second death. Um, this lake of fire, it's an image from earlier in chapter 20 and chapter 19. Um, there it's called the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And uh, chapters 19 and 20, they're all about the end of the world. And Jesus paints this vivid picture of a war between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It's Jesus and his angels versus Satan and um, the powers that, he sta that stand behind him. Um, kings and beasts and a false prophet. But they don't stand a chance against Jesus. One by one, Jesus throws the power of, powers of evil um, into this lake of burning sulfur. And they receive their judgment. And coming back to our passage now in verse 14. Um, now death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire as well. I need you to do a little thought experiment for me. Um, paint a picture of this in your head, a very literal picture. What would it look like to throw death into a lake? What does that even, what would that even be? Death is not a, a thing, it's a concept, isn't it? Um, you can't literally throw death into a lake. Um, maybe if death was represented by a person, you could get rid of it. Um, and do the same experiment for Hades, right? Hades is this place for disembodied souls. They sleep until they wait for judgment. It's not like the prison of Azkaban. You can't just pick it up and throw it into a lake. It's a concept. Um, and so the vision may not be completely literal, but the idea that underlies the vision is very clear. On the day of Jesus' final judgment, there'll be no need for a Hades um, because it will be, there'll be no more death. Um, death itself will be destroyed and, and burned up and finished and no longer part of God's good creation. Um, so there's actually something very good about this lake of fire because it represents the end of everything bad that happens in this world. It represents the destruction of evil and, and everything associated with it. Um, justice will be done. And every injustice that, that our world has known, it will be righted on that day. It's a great triumph of good over evil. But it's part of that triumph. It also means that every human must stand and face judgment for any injustices that we have done. And that's where we need to read verse 15, a picture that stand, uh, speaks for itself. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, it's a sobering picture, isn't it? I said I'm not a fire and brimstone guy. This is a graphic picture of God's judgment in which human life is lost. Verse 14 calls it the second death. Um, Jesus himself called it hell, and Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. He doesn't want us to end up there. That's the point. 
Judging humans guilty is the very last thing that God wants to do. The big picture of the the Bible, the big story of the Bible is the story of God's plan to undo the curse of sin and undo the curse of death and to restore his good creation so that we humans can enjoy life with God forever and ever just like he intended it to be in the beginning. And that's where this sobering passage actually has a very happy ending. Did you notice the other book that was mentioned? book of life. See, the first books, they're records of our sins. They're records that lead to death. But the other book is the book of life. And those names, those people who have their name written in the book of life, they actually escape the lake of fire. They escape the second death. You see that in verse 15. Um, I love this. I love this because it means sinners like me have a chance to be saved. Um, You see, the book of life isn't anything about what we've done. It's purely about whether Jesus knows us, whether he's written our name in the book, whether we belong to him, whether we've come to him for forgiveness. Because when we're friends with Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. And there's an old Dennis the Menace cartoon. Um, Dennis and his friend Joey walk away from Mrs. Wilson's house with a fistful of cookies. And Joey says, I wonder what we did to deserve this. (laughs) And Dennis says... Uh, We don't deserve these. Mrs. Wilson doesn't give us cookies because we're nice. She gives us cookies because she's nice. And Jesus, he doesn't forgive our sins because we're nice. He forgives our sins because he is nice. It says in my favorite verse in the Bible, Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember at the beginning of our passage today, that description of the one sitting on the throne of judgment, and we weren't quite sure who it was. What I love in the book of Revelation is, is on the throne there are two pictures. Sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's Jesus pictured on the throne. Um, sometimes they're together. Sometimes it's God and the Lamb. But whenever Jesus is on the throne, he's always referred to as the Lamb, or the Lamb that looked like it had been slain. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, when God's people had sinned, they would bring a lamb to the temple and uh, it would be killed. And it was this vivid symbol of God's punishment for sin. But it's also his provision of a substitute, a life given for a life. God's lamb, Jesus Christ, gave his life for our life. That's what the cross was all about. And it will be God's lamb sitting on the judgment seat, on that judgment throne, on that day that this passage speaks about, on that day when we all have an encounter with Jesus. And the lamb is the one that you want on the, on the judgment seat, isn't it? Because Jesus is the one who knows if you belong to him. He's the one who knows if you've given your life to him. It's he alone who will have written your name in the book of life. And he alone who has the power to save you from the second death. If we know the lamb, we'll know life. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we, um, you've just given us a vision of, of what's going to happen one day, um, a vision that may be terrifying for some of us. Father, help us to have great confidence in the Lamb, your Son, Jesus, who died for us. We pray, Father, that you would show us your great love for us, your love where you would die even while we were still sinners. Um, perhaps you might call it reckless love, that you came and found us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have our trust in Jesus Christ, 
and him alone. And on that day that you would find our names written in the book of life. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.